Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Zosha Archibald for a conversation about how commerce functioned in the northern Aegean in the ancient period. So the Aegean Sea, which is in the eastern Mediterranean, that is uh, predominantly surrounded by modern day Greece and Turkey. So if we go to the uh, northern part of that sea and the accompanying land, that region, today we're going to talk more about how commerce in the ancient period functioned. Dr. Archibald is Senior Lecturer, Archaeology, Classics, and Egyptology at University of Liverpool, where she has taught ancient history and archaeology for over 20 years. She's the author of the monographs, Ancient Economies in the Northern Aegean, which was published by Oxford University Press, sounds germane to this topic, and also the Odrysian Kingdom of Thrace, or Fuse Unmasked, also published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to the call, Zosha. Hello, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're talking today about commerce in ancient northern Aegean, so that the, the region there. Can you describe for listeners so that we're all on the same page from a geography and a time perspective, can you describe the, the region that we're speaking about? And then when scholars mention ancient, uh, what time frame that is? Yes, of course. So what is the Northern Aegean? If we imagine the Aegean for a moment, we have a scene vaguely circular in shape. And at the top is the three-fingered peninsula of Halkidiki, a great place to holiday with lovely (laughs) beaches. And to the east of that three-fingered peninsula, there is a long bit of coastline without very much interruption, but with a couple of two big river valleys, the Strimon estuary and the Hebros estuary. And the Strimon estuary is in a very marshy terrain and nearly opposite the estuary is the big island of Thasos. Mm-hmm. And then when we move eastwards, in the direction of the modern Turkish border, there is the estuary of the Hebros. Uh, this is the River Marita in Bulgaria. Uh, and then the uh, Straits of the Hellespont with the Narrows as, as far as Istanbul and the Black Sea. So that's the coastline of the northern Aegean but in practice that coastline has a hinterland and the hinterland includes the Thermaic Gulf which is the big gulf on which Thessaloniki stands today and this is a a big gulf of the sea which has changed a lot over the centuries and today it's quite a big gulf But it used to be much, much, much bigger. And that means 4,000 years ago, it was much bigger. Mm. And it gradually became silted up uh, by the um, sands and uh, silts brought down by four big rivers coming into the Thermaic Gulf. So the Thermaic Gulf is a very important part on the west 
of the Northern Aegean. And this was, in fact, the most popular place to live in the Neolithic of Northern Greece. The Thermaic Gulf was a sort of magnet that attracted a lot of settlement. And the whole coastline is ringed by big mounds, settlement mounds called tumbas. And these were occupied very often from the Neolithic as far as the late Bronze Age, and some of them for much longer than that. So the Thermaic Gulf is a really important part of the North Aegean, as well as that three-fingered peninsula, and all the land as far as Istanbul. And for the conversation so that we put some parameters on it today, um, what, uh, when, when we're referencing ancient, what, uh, what time frame do we want to talk about? Well, we, we could be going right back into the Neolithic in the 5th and 6th millennium BC, but for practical purposes, I think we're mainly going to be speaking about the first millennium BC, the period from around a thousand to uh, the early centuries AD when the Romans occupied much of this area. Okay, so in that first millennium BC, uh, what were the main economic hubs in that region that you've already laid out very nicely? For everyone? Well, we, we tend to think of the coastline as being the principal epicenter of, of trade because much trade was maritime trade, bulk transports coming by ship to a, a suitable harbour in the North Aegean. But the North Aegean doesn't have very many good harbours along that straight bit of coastline. So most of the good harbours are either in the Thermaic Gulf, that's close to where modern Thessaloniki is, and, and, and the modern city has inherited many of the characteristics of these ancient sites, uh, and on the estuaries of these big rivers. So the really important places for trade included these big river estuaries, uh, and um, on the Strumon, it was Amphipolis, the big city from the 5th and 4th centuries BC and onwards. Mm. Uh, and further along the coast, there was Abdera and Neapolis. Uh, and then Ainos on the estuary of the Hebros, on the, just inside the Turkish border. And then further up, the cities along the straits between the Aegean and the Black Sea, uh, and particularly Byzantium, which is modern mm -hmm. Istanbul. So those are, those are the principal hubs. But between them, there are all kinds of other places, some of them inland places, that were also important centres of exchange. And these are really known by their modern names rather than their ancient names, uh, mm -hmm. except for those that became Roman cities. So inland we had um, Kipsela along the river Hebros, and further inland there is 
Filipopolis or the modern Bulgarian city of Plovdiv uh, and sites along the, the, the Tonzos, the big tributary of the Hebros, uh, such as Kabyle. And then later on, you have a configuration of cities between those two. Uh, the place that I've really been exploring for the best part of 20 years is a site called Pistiros, which is a little bit further west from Philippopolis. And it's a river port. It's one of the most exciting discoveries of the last 50 years because it's inland and it's a huge city and it has traces of extraordinary exchanges, very large quantities of transport amphorae and all kinds of other interesting artifacts. Hmm. And when did the Romans begin to control this area? That's a, that's a very interesting question mm-hmm. because we have a, a sort of progressive mm-hmm. uh, step expansion of the Romans. Uh, there was a lot of activity. This, this sort of goes back to the Macedonian settlement of the Romans in the second century, in the middle of the second century BC, when the kings of Macedon were defeated. Perseus V was defeated at the Battle of Pydna in 167, and that was the moment when, 168, sorry, BC, uh, that was the moment when there was a, a big step change in, in uh, Roman expansion eastwards. And there was a, a, a preliminary settlement of the regions of Macedonia. And at that time, Macedonia extended uh, into much of this Aegean region, not far east as, as, as the territory I'm talking about, but certainly halfway across. Uh, and in the period that followed, during the civil wars, uh, this was a very strategic area because it joined Europe and Asia. So during the civil wars, we find the armies of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony meeting at Philippi, which is sort of bang in the middle of this coastline. And there was a progressive uh, series of stages where the Romans negotiated with some of the local kings and gradually took over this territory in a series of expansions in the first century AD. Hmm. Okay, so before before that, so for more in the you know second to ninth centuries in that in that range, did. Did the people in this region, did they consider themselves part of the same civilization or did they consider themselves diff- different civilizations? Well, this is an interesting question because we tend to think about these regions through modern eyes. We look, we look at them through the national identities that, that, that have inherited these territories. So we have, we have Greece on the west, we have Turkey in the southeast, uh, and we have Bulgaria in the north of this territory. Uh, but in reality, in antiquity, uh, these, these were very mixed regions in terms of their cultural makeup. And I mentioned the Thermaic Gulf, which is such a, an attractor for many people in the first millennium BC. And this was a region occupied by 
people who have all kinds of individual names. They have tribal names. They are called Botiaeans and Paeonians and um, Bisaltians and Edonians and all these, these tribal names mm -hmm. that our major historians use to describe the populations. And some of them are Greek speakers and some of them are Thracian speakers, or, although the languages are not really specified by our historians. Mm. So we have a merging of different cultural features in this area. And it's difficult to ascribe labels. Historians sometimes give these people specific labels, but very often they don't. They just call them by these tribal names. And we have to guess whether they should properly be considered under a bigger label like Thracians or Macedonians. Okay. How did uh, trade operate then in ancient times in uh, this region? Well, one of the interesting things about this region is that it's an early adopter of coinage. Okay. So in the second half of the 6th century BC, we find some of the earliest coins being minted in these regions. And the main reason for that is the existence of a metal mountain, Mount Pangaeon, mm. which is just to the east of the Halkidic Peninsula and the estuary of the River Strymon. And it was an amazing source of gold and silver. Mm. Uh, and this was exploited from the late Bronze Age onwards, if not earlier. But in the first millennium, we find that the mines that were operated by the local tribesmen began to be an attractive magnet for all sorts of other people. But to begin with, it was the local communities, the Edonians and the Bisaltians and uh, their neighbours who were mining the gold and mm. silver. And they were also producers of iron and copper. So there's there's a great deal of mining innovation going on along this coastline, but also further in into the Rodopi Mountains where you have other mines, gold mines and silver mines. So there is a precocious production of various metals, precious metals, but also base metals. Mm. And the base metals are not unimportant here because we're looking at a region that also has quite a lot of early iron working. Some of the earliest iron that we know of, iron, metal uh, iron, comes from Macedonia, from Vardarovtsa, uh, first excavated in the early 20th century. So we, we've got a lot of innovation taking place in metal production in the first half of the first millennium BC. And the production of coined money is a, an outcome of that interest, that early interest in metals. And the coinage is really a sort of offshoot of the production of bullion, silver bullion, gold bullion, and other forms of metal bars 
iron bars. Iron bars were used as a form of exchange and we find them as dedications in a little sanctuary of Apollo uh, along the coast uh, at um, uh, a place which is today called Messimbria. Uh, so we know that these bars were being used as a form of money, just as as metal bars in precious metals were, alongside the coin. This region is also a net producer of commodities, cereals, animals, domesticated animals, animal products such as leather and textiles. And all of these will have operated as a form of money as well as metal. Yeah, so I was going to ask you actually uh, about that. So they're mining, they're minting their own coins in this, some of the tribes in, near this mountain that, that you referenced. How does that process start then? They make the coins and then they go and trade the coins for goods at that point, And that starts the process of circulating currency? Or something else well the, the 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 metal comes in bar form first but the bars don't often survive we sometimes find metal hoards with bars of metal alongside coins but generally speaking it's the coins that survive because the coins were recirculated and the bars were melted down bars were used to make all sorts of metal items, plate, mm. uh, jewellery, uh, all sorts of decorative items, and then they got recirculated in that form, whereas the coins are small and convenient, and they tend to survive better, and we pay a lot more attention to the coins, whereas in reality, most money was in some other form. It wasn't in the coined form. Okay. And... Um... So what were the known trade routes then in this region? Was there anything that seemed very pronounced for, uh, for actual routes of trade? Well, yes, yes. We've got some very interesting patterns. Mm -hmm. And this uh, three-fingered peninsula of Halkidiki is a kind of dividing line between what happens to the west in the Thermaic Gulf and what happens to the east because to the east, we've got the big island of Thazos, which was inhabited for quite a long time before we have colonists coming from the island of Paros. And they seem to have set up an interesting relationship between the indigenous people and started producing wine for export. Mm. And Thasian wine was exported on a very significant scale to the Black Sea okay. in the 6th century BC. Uh, massive quantities of this wine were exported into the Black Sea, particularly the northern and western coasts of the Black Sea, and also inland. So we find fairly significant quantities going inland. So a lot of the wine amphorae are discovered at various coastal locations, and these were the the intermediary entrepot, they were the intermediary ports for shipping wine inland. But the bulk of the, the uh, exports seemed to have gone off to the Black Sea. That, that's really what drove the whole process. Mm. 
So Thasian wine is the really big thing in the northern Aegean for the best part of three to four hundred years. So it begins in the sixth century, uh, in the second half of the sixth century, and it carries on, really, it, it almost like a monopoly in many of these areas. There are other producers who also get involved in the same trade, but Thasian wine is a very significant export over the whole of this region but not to the west. So hmm. something completely different is going on west of the island of Thasos. And this is partly because in Halkidiki you also have wine being produced. Uh, and we have jars uh, from Mendi in the western finger of Halkidiki. Uh, and that wine is circulating westwards into the Thermaic Gulf uh, and also eastwards and elsewhere. So it's a competitor to Thasian Amphrae. Now, I've completely ignored the fact that before this massive export from Thasos and Mendi began, there was already wine being shipped around the North Aegean, perhaps also olive oil, from a number of centres in the Thermaic Gulf. So they are the kind of predecessor of what we find. And then we find the, the big bulk exports of Thasian and Mendean wine following on from that. So these are, these are very distinct patterns that are visible in terms of archaeological residues, the containers. But we also have all kinds of other commodity exchanges which are less visible. And these we know about from various associated artifacts. So the production of textiles is something that we can document mainly from loo whites in the production centers. Loo whites, loo sorry? Yes. Yeah, uh, okay. So the loo whites illustrate different types of, of uh, textile okay. because the weights are designed for a particular weight of thread. So the heavier weights are designed for wool production and the lighter ones for other textiles, perhaps linen, uh, and lighter fibres and brocades. Mm. And these loom weights represent a very significant export in the whole of the region that we're looking mm. at. So going back to the uh, Thracian wine as an example, so wine is being exported from this region up to the Black Sea area. Do you have any sense of what was being exchanged for that wine? Yes. Well, we, we, know, we know that, that cereals were a very significant import into the Aegean from the northern Aegean. We, there's, there's a lot of documentation that shows cereals are the big exchange item that's coming in exchange for wine. But we ought also to be thinking about animal products. And animal products are a very significant export from the region of southern, southeastern Europe. Uh, what central Greece didn't have was large quantities of domesticants. When it comes to big festivals, you have a big festival in Athens, you have hecatombs, you have... You, you have a demand for very large numbers of animals. And the problem for them, for the civic magistrates is, well, where are we gonna get them from? You can, you can get your visitors to bring their own animals. And we know that 
it, in many cases, the Athenians required their allies to bring a, a cow and a panoply. This is what we have documented on inscriptions. Bring your dinner with you, bring a cow, as well as a suit of armour to put on display. And that's great, but it's only going to satisfy part of the demand. So the rest of the demand has to be satisfied from other sources. And that we, we don't know enough about how that demand was satisfied. But certainly we know from the, the uh, historian Polybius that, that there were cows coming into the Aegean from the Black Sea region and from the big exporting centres, not just uh, Byzantium, but also probably its neighbouring cities, places like Salimbria uh, and from uh, the Chersonese. These were probably the exit points for cattle and sheep uh, from the hinterland. Were these people known to be mariners? Did they do a lot of trade via boat? Well, most of the mariners were the owners of ships, and we're mainly talking about Greek ship owners yeah. from the islands and from the big uh, naval communities. Yeah. So we have from, from uh, late 5th and 4th century forensic speeches, we know quite a lot about who the merchants were and who the ship's captains were. Mm. Uh, so somebody had to put up the money for a, for a commodity transport. Uh, and find a suitable captain with a ship, and then secure the the, the transport, and um, and then make sure it comes back, so that you mm. get the return on your investment. And most of the ships were 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 owned by Greek merchants, uh, and they were funded by various kinds of investors. And they weren't just Greek investors. We know from the Athenian records that some of them came from other parts of the, the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. So the investors could be all kinds of international investors, but the ship's captains and the crews seem mainly to have been Greeks. But of course, some of the crewmen could have come from anywhere, particularly if they were um, slaves or if they came from an enslaved background, they could have come from all sorts of places. We don't know anything about who actually mess boats. And we don't know very much about who the reciprocating merchants were. We know quite a lot about the Greek speakers. But once you start going inland, then there's a question of, well, who are the merchants coming from the reciprocating centres, the centres that are exporting the animals or the textiles or the cereals? You know, they have merchants too. Mm. We know less about them because they sometimes appear on contract documents. Uh, but really, there isn't very much in the form of written evidence. And did you get a sense in your research that there was more owners of boats, so owning and using boats was more prevalent, more south in what would be modern day Greece versus the northern Aegean region, more like the Ath Athens, uh, the Cyclades islands? Well, I think we have we have, we have quite a lot of traffic coming from the southern Aegean. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's the traffic that we know about from, from, as I said, forensic speeches or from, from some of the contracts. But there were also ship's captains and mariners from these northern areas. Okay. 
Uh, and some of the lead tablets suggest that that the the various middlemen who uh, the southern Aegean captains and investors were dealing with were local people, and some of them were 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 also ships captains. So there is a there is a a network of other maritime people involved in these various exchanges who who are locals mm. and they are important because they know the local markets they know the local producers they're trustworthy and therefore if you happen to be an investor or a captain from the southern Aegean, you need to have somebody you can trust and do business with in the north mm. so you need to have reciprocal uh, individuals do you get a sense of what was commonly being imported uh, via boats from the south to the northern Aegean? Yes, this is a little bit more problematic. We, we, we sort mm-hmm. of make assumptions about things like um, Athenian decorated or plain pottery, which it travels well and is, is widely distributed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know a little bit about uh, oil being exported from various centres in the central and southern Aegean north. Like olive oil? Oil, uh, so, olive oil is... Uh, okay. is, is, is limited in its um, originating centres from a climatic point of view. They're at the mm. north of the immediate coast of the North Aegean. You don't really have olive production on, on, on any scale. And certainly in antiquity, there wasn't a lot of olive production going on there. Uh, so olive oil is definitely moving north. Okay. What do, do, do we know about contracts do we know anything about how they established formal relationships with each other in ancient times? Contracts, we're quite well provided with a certain form of contract. I've mentioned a couple of times lead letters, and these are sheets of lead which have some kind of communication on them. And that's why they're called letters. And sometimes they're rolled up or folded over. And typically they contain a contract between two individuals who want to exchange some sort of commodity. So dozens of these lead letters have been discovered uh, and they've been discovered in different parts of the Aegean and the Black Sea. So they've been discovered in Athens, uh, in the Northern Aegean and in the Black Sea. So these represent uh, what we might call invoices Mm. so there is they have a legal status uh, the 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 legal parties are referred to and there is some substance to the contract about who owes who what Uh, and some of these lead letters show that there were problems (laughs) something Mm. went wrong and something had to be put right Mm. we just don't know what the outcome was we we know that somebody attempted to put it right uh, and they tried to put pressure on, on whoever was their opposite number at the other end in this way. So I was planning on asking uh, about settling disputes, and that's a good segue. Do scholars know much about how um, commercial disputes were settled back then? Was there a formal process? Was it an informal process? Do we, what do we know about that? Most of what we know about concerns... Uh, the commercial courts in Athens in the 
second half of the fourth century BC. Uh, and these clearly indicate that, that there were businessmen from various parts of the Aegean who went into contracts together in order to exchange commodities, move transports around. Uh, and they were businessmen from a wide range of centres, but they came to Athens because that's where these commercial courts existed. Uh, from time to time, we hear about courts in other locations. And certainly the fact that you have markets uh, in many places suggests that there was somebody there with legal authority who could also deal with commercial disputes. And from time to time, we have some, some evidence uh, in the form of inscriptions or uh, other, other types of documents, which confirms that, that there, were, there, there were contractual obligations that could be followed up legally, uh, locally. But most of our information comes from forensic speeches in Athens. Okay. Uh, and uh, certainly the, 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 there were all kinds of um, disputes about things that went wrong. So sometimes it was about a claimant who, who felt that he'd, um, he, he'd been wronged by, by his, his um, contractor, either in terms of the commodities not arriving or more often it's about problems with with a particular transport or with the lending of money because of course mm. lending people money is is a risky business and and so we we get all kinds of disputes about who gave who lent whom what monies and whether or not they were they were returned and how so we we have a certain amount of information about these kinds of contracts but Probably the best, the best, the best evidence of, of contracts working is is the fact that we have a lot of commodities that are exchanged on a regular basis. And regular may mean once a year, or once every six months, or it may be once a month, or, or perhaps more often, depending on what the commodities were. What uh, in terms of co contracts? So if there's two parties um, creating some kind of contract, let's say it's on the lead the lead letters, there had to have been communication and language involved was there a common language in the region in ancient times or were there some prominent languages that were used in the region well the dominant language is greek but it is not the only language we have contractual documents in bilingual form in the western mediterranean where phoenician is one of the languages and Greek may be one of the, 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 the other language. So Greek is a very dominant language for contracts. And this is, I think, because there, there was the relationship between the development of texts and the use of Greek uh, for writing. And this developed a path dependency for the use of Greek in international contractual situations. It was the easiest way to draw up a contract because there were precedents. Precedents seem to have come pretty early in the eighth century, very soon after the first texts appear, we have evidence of some kind of contractual exchanges which involve 
the Greek language. So there does seem to be a relationship between the development of contracts in the Aegean and northwards, as well as westwards into the Western Mediterranean, where Greek really is is driving this process. Although in the Western Mediterranean, it isn't the only one. Okay, so in... And, uh, and Punic is, is the other language in the Western Mediterranean where you, you have... You, you, you have an equivalent status, you have a sort of, you may get parallel texts. Okay. You've been a uh, professor of archaeology, classics, and Egyptology for a couple decades now, and uh, you started your career before that, I'm sure, as well. What had you go down this path of uh, as a career? I have to be honest with you, I didn't really plan it that way. <laughs> Okay. I didn't. Uh, I didn't have a, a, a great plan to um, to be a, a professor of archaeology. What I did want to do was to discover things. I had when when I was about nine years old. I had a dream about discovering a, um, a, an underwater city, and I think that was one of the things that just sort of fired my imagination. Yeah. Uh, but I, I've always been excited by discovery and the, 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 the business of actually physically discovering things has mm. always been a great motivator. Uh, and it's one of the things that has made me go out and do stuff in the field, uh, as well as enjoying library research. It, it's, it's that business about discovery, making things happen, making exciting projects mm -hmm. happen. And that was was my experience in, in Bulgaria over many years when mm. when I was excavating at Pistiros. It was so exciting. It really was marvellous to just you you went and you didn't know what was going to happen, and something would always happen that would be much more interesting and unexpected that you could ever have anticipated. And I've had a similar experience at, at Olynthus where. Uh, I've been a co-director for the past six years at the ancient site where we've been conducting a new project that, that sort of brings Olynthus uh, into the 21st century in terms of scientific techniques. So it's always been that, that process of discovery. Uh, and that was one of the things that um, persuaded me to go and do a little bit of voluntary work in British Museum when I was a graduate student mm. uh, and worked on the finds from the wreck of the Colossus, uh, which involved piecing together lots and lots and lots of shirts of Greek pottery and trying to make them into complete vessels. <laughs> and mm. I learned more about Greek pottery in that process than, than I have in any, in any exercise uh -huh. since then. Uh, so yes, the excitement of discovery. Yeah, and, uh, and where's Olynthus? Olynthus is just inside the westernmost finger of the Halkidic Peninsula, the city known for having been destroyed by Philip II of Macedon. Uh, so it's got a very specific end date, 348 BC, uh, and a very big city with, with an exciting earlier history. So it sits in that interesting area between Halkidiki, Macedon and Thrace. Which, which is giving us new ways of seeing identities and relations exchanges in this period of the first millennium BC. 
the way you speak about your your career and the stuff that you're finding, Zosha, you've been doing it a while, but it sounds like you're even just getting started. Thank you for coming on the <laughs> thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> I think there are, there are new kinds of discoveries probably that that will have to be done in remote form in the next few years. <laughs> yeah, but um, but but ancient economies is one of the things that's that's really been a, a very exciting uh, topic of research for me trying to understand how, how ancient economies worked and, and how they relate to our own modern concept. You have a lot of projects on the go, so it, I'm sure you'll stay busy over the next uh, many years. Thanks for coming on this show, Zosha. Thank you for inviting me, Andrew. For everyone listening, if you'd like to pick up either of Dr. Archibald's monographs, uh, Ancient Economies in the Northern Aegean and the Odrysian Kingdom of Thrace or Fuse Unmasked, I'll drop links to both those books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Zosha and everyone listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Bye-bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.